1977, theaters were packed out as this little movie hit the screen called Star Wars, and uh, I didn't see it for, I was two years old, so I had to wait, you know, 10 years to see it. But uh, it starts out, the opening scene is there's this little ship, and it's being fired upon by this massive, massive uh, star empire, you know, star destroyer, this massive ship. And it won, uh, you know, all kinds of awards for special effects, and the audience was mesmerized. What's going on? But the first thing you see is that this the ship is under fire. Our text today is Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 11, but we pick it up kind of like that first scene where the church is under fire. And so, like in Star Wars, before audiences sat there, having never seen anything like this before, saying, what is happening? There's that text crawl with, like, the yellow font that's sort of moving into the horizon, kind of sets it up to be like, here's what happened, here's the context. And so, before I read from Acts chapter 4, I just want to give you a text crawl. So we all know why the church is under fire. Acts chapter 3, Peter and some of the disciples are headed to the temple. And en route, there's a lame beggar begging. And he was 40 years old. He'd been begging for years and years. Everybody knew this guy. This is his spot. And this is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the world has been turned upside down as the impossible has happened. One who claimed to be God rises from the grave. Three days later, there's not a missing body theory, but hundreds of people are witnesses to the living Jesus Christ, as for 40 days he was appearing to people, and uh, this this, uh, massive, massive explosion of Christianity is about to happen. And we're right on the precipice of all of this, when Peter looks at this beggar, and he says to him, Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the man is healed. And this is a massive problem for the religious crowd. Because they're trying to erase this Jesus Christ guy. And not only has he foiled their plans of of erasing him by showing himself to hundreds of people in the resurrection, but now... The followers of Jesus who are proclaiming the divinity of Jesus, who are calling people to turn and worship Jesus, are now doing the exact same miracles of Jesus. And so it's in this massive, you know, explosion of power that the religious who's who put the disciples in jail. They put them in jail overnight. They threatened them not to preach in the name and because they can't deny the miracle, because the man of, you know, who's 40 years old has been lame for years is standing right there and nobody can deny it. The only thing they can do is say, by whose authority did you do this? And it's just sort of this epic display of the dark sickness in their heart as they display no compassion and no amazement and no worship of the God who is mighty to save, the God who is mighty to heal, the God who has raised uh, Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, Jesus Christ being God raised from the dead. There's none of this. They just ask, by whose authority do you do this? And we pick it up in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 11. They answer the question by saying this. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven to which mankind can be saved. 
And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they've performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. And they couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened, the audacity. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And so on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. And they reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, uh, the, the, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed... The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. And all the believers were in one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection and the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time... Those who owned houses or land sold them, and they brought the money from the sales, and they put them all at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This is God's word. Now, this passage has a few movements. I want to take you through them. There's four. I know that normally I only preach about three things, but last year a bunch of the presbytery laid hands on me. I've leveled up. There's more XP. This sermon's going to be three hours. I'm just kidding. Uh, there's four movements. We're actually going to spend most of our time in the latter movements so that it's not going to uh, take us all, all, the, all evening to get through this. The first movement is there's a proclamation of the gospel. And after the proclamation of the gospel, that takes us to the second movement, which is threats and intimidation by those who reject the gospel. And after that movement, there's a third movement, which is that the church gathers to pray for boldness to continue to minister the gospel. And then the last movement is it results in generous living, the result of belief in the gospel. So let's look at the first movement, the proclamation of the gospel. In verse 11, 
They come out and they, they go right to prophecy and right to scripture and they, the, they answer their accusers by saying that Jesus Christ is the stone that the builders rejected. He is the cornerstone. He is the fulfillment of all scripture. He is the only name under heaven by whom you can be saved. It will not come through your law keeping because nobody is keeping the law. In that context, they're religious leaders. That's why they're speaking this way. There's only one name under heaven by whom mankind can be saved, and it's Christ and him alone. And so what we discover right from the beginning, this gospel, this bold proclamation, which is in massive contradiction to all religion, every religion in every form. I mean, in this, in this case, it's um, not a foreign religion. It's the idea that uh, Jesus Christ is not who he said he was, and you're saved by your obedience to the scriptures. And they say, no, because nobody can actually do that. You must trust in Jesus. But all other religion here today is the modern church. All the competing religions and philosophies are essentially salvation by your own merits and your good works. Even if you're here today and you're like, well, free pass to me because I'm a person of non-faith. People of non-faith still... Uh, save themselves, I'll use that, I know that's a religious term, so they say they, they justify their existence, they justify their goodness, they justify the street cred of their business, they justify their, you know, how woke they are, how caring they are, how loving they are, by the life they're living. Everybody justifies themselves by something. And so what they're saying here is, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life None of us are living, and he died that atoning death for our sin. And he, his divine resurrection is proof that he is God who does not say, here's the following things you ought to do in order to be saved. He came to save us. Proclamation of the gospel. And you see throughout the book of Acts that that, that gospel, that, the name of Jesus, that I preach Sunday after Sunday after Sunday like a mockingbird on repeat, the name of Jesus throughout the book of Acts, is, it is a... Singular message, but it's not, a, it's not a simple message. It's not simple because depending on the context of who you're speaking to, you've got to really go after the idols or the, you know, the, the object of worship of that person that's convinced this other thing that they've wrapped their life around is saving them. And you see that through the book of Acts. They speak differently based on the context, but in this context, it's uh, the religious leaders, so they use this language, which leads to the second movement. So the pro- proclamation of the gospel... It leads to threats and intimidation by all those who reject the gospel. And here we find that it's, you know, the religious who's who, they're drunk on power, and they're sort of obsessed with the power. And we can see those who, re- who reject the gospel today, perhaps they're drunk on power. Perhaps they reject it because they're drunk on their own, you know, autonomous freedom. The idea of that Jesus cannot possibly be Lord because I am Lord and King and Queen I sit on the throne of my own heart. And so any message that suggests I have to bend my knee to a sovereign, I reject that because I am sovereign. We're moderns and we're enlightened and we're intelligent and we don't need to believe in gods and angels and devils and demons and this is all nonsense. I'm a very educated, intelligent person. And so therefore I am the God of my own life, for lack of a better term. So there's lots of reasons that we can reject this gospel. But those who hear the name of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, have no choice but to either have really strong feelings that are positive or negative about Jesus. It can't be moderately okay with Jesus. 
Because he didn't give us any room for that. He's either the Lord or he's an absolute lunatic. And so they're threatened by Jesus. They're threatened by the message of the gospel. And as a result of this, there's these these massive threats. And uh, verse 12, they say to them, there's only one name under heaven by which we can be saved. And I want to encourage you, church, that's the hill you need to die on. The name. Because if we're going to be rejected and persecuted, which at some point we all will be, let it be because of the name. Let it not be because we're obnoxious or we're uncaring or we're not thoughtful. Let it not be because we don't understand how to read the room and that we're sitting across from someone who doesn't share our ethics and we decide to just die on the hill of hammering our ethics. If we're going to be rejected and persecuted, let it be... Because of this name. And the reason I say that, we got to get to the name, is because there's power in the name. I am not for a second suggesting that we should not be involved in difficult and uh, controversial conversations in the public square. Or that we should shrink away because, you know, from conversations because we can't seem to walk 10 feet today without bumping into a debate about identity politics or something like that. I'm not suggesting that as Christians we say, I'm just not going to get involved in anything controversial. I'm not suggesting that. I practice, this is not a theory for me. I get involved in difficult conversations on purpose. Not because I'm trying to be obnoxious, but because, uh, you know, if I'm going to minister in Kitchener-Waterloo, that's going to inevitably lead to difficult conversations. All through COVID, I was doing events online with uh, students from the University of Waterloo. I'm doing another one in two weeks, but I'll be on campus praise Jesus, and there will be students there, and they'll invite their friends, and at the end of all the talks that I give, then the students just fire the bullets. And then they want to ask all of the controversial questions about uh, sexual ethics and what the Bible says versus the cultural conversation. And basically what I'm telling you is, to, to quote another theologian I heard recently, people are not that interested if Christians are smart or right. Right at this moment, they want to know if we're good. Are we loving? Do we care? Or in the first five minutes of speaking, is the conversation over and everybody's heated and angry? Because the hill that we died on wasn't the name. So it's not a theory for me, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't get into those tough... I mean, Susan and I were in hot water a couple months ago, having a conversation. They wanted to know if Redeemer was affirming, right? And I said, well, if you're asking me if anybody from the LGBTQ community can come in here and be treated with dignity and love, then absolutely the answer is 100% yes. Oh my gosh, I hope so. If you're here today and you are a part of the LGBTQ community, then I hope that you find us to be kind and caring people. But that's a very different question than asking if everybody ought to think the same way, check the same boxes, and believe the same things. I don't think that's realistic of Waterloo Region, not because I'm a Christian, but because I'm a human being. I don't think that Christians and Muslims and atheists and agnostics and Hindus and, and, and uh, you know, fill in the blank, I don't think we're all going to check the same boxes. So I don't think that being loving and caring in Waterloo Region means that I ought to check the same boxes as you're checking as it relates to sexual ethics for our church to be able to meet and gather here. And so, you know, th- that was not the, that's not the correct answer. The correct answer to, as far as the culture is concerned, to are you affirming, the correct answer is yes, we're affirming. But what I'm wondering is if there's another way forward. Can we be loving and caring and being a generous community with people that think absolutely nothing like us, 
but be caring and loving and not share those views. So I say all of that to say this is not a theory for me, and I know I just took a long time to justify myself, but what I'm trying to get at, friends, is if you're going to die on a hill, it's got to, the hill we have to die on has got to be the name, because that's where the power is. When I'm discussing things at the university in two weeks, when they ask me, you know, every question under the sun, I'm going to do my best to be generous in those dialogues, but there's no power. I mean, the, 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 the power and the anointing of the Spirit is not coming upon my defensive ethics, but the moment that the name of Jesus starts to get talked about, that's where the power is. That's where the life-changing, heart-melting, mind-orienting work of the Spirit takes place, when you are speaking about the name. So when we're talking about being missional in Kitchener-Waterloo and being a church that is missional and sharing the gospel, that gospel means one thing, getting to the name. So let's move on to the third movement. After these threats and the intimidation come because they've rejected the gospel because of the name, the third movement is that the church is prompted to gather and pray for boldness to minister the gospel. And here's what I just kind of want to camp on for a minute, is that it says there in the text, in verse 23, that they gather together and they go back to their own people. My friends at Redeemer, if you're a member here, these are your own people. If you're not a member here and you're in the journey, we understand that. It's difficult. This is a mobile culture. Moved from another city. I get that. But at some point... If you're not a member here at Redeemer, this is not a commercial for Redeemer. There's other faithful churches in the city, okay? But you you got to have your own people. And even here within Redeemer, we can't all be close and intimate and best friends with 100 people. So even within this group, there's got to be smaller groups. The community groups broke up geographically or whether, uh, whether the, your own people are in your community group or your own people are sitting somewhere else in this room. But we got to have our... We've got to have our own people who can go to, who share our faith, who understand God's word, who can encourage us by God's word, who are full of the Spirit, who can, who can come alongside us as we pray and intercede for boldness to continue to share the gospel when we are rejected, when we are persecuted. We, we want to very much uh, be a church where we can say of our, even of ourselves, even though we're messy and we annoy each other and we can offend each other, in the last two years in COVID, we are literally rebuilding community in terms of like our own people. Because for, for two years, it's been tough. We've tried to connect in various ways. Uh, and even still, we're not fully connected. We have members who are with us, who are gathering with us online. We're still not. We've got to rebuild this, make this investment, do the sweat equity of saying that the most important reason we gather together in our community is the name. It's the name that we proclaim and that we worship. It's the name that we gather. It's the name we've got to get together with our own people to say, would you pray with me and encourage me? I've got to go back out into work or campus or whatever it is I'm going into and, uh, and love my neighbor and love those or have a difficult conversation or engage with someone that's, that, 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 that doesn't, you know, their view of the world is completely different than mine as a Christian and love them and care for them and lay my life down in ways to be generous toward them. For that, we've got to get together. We've got to have our own people. And this is a challenge, you know, for the modern church because we are mobile. In the ancient world, the first, the first century church, it wasn't like somebody, you know, offended you at church. You know, the preacher preached a couple sermons you didn't like. You're like, hmm, 
That was a five. Ugh. How many more weeks can we go with the preacher preaching a five? Oof. You know what? And then they walk down the street. And they knock on another door. There's another house church in there. They're all having a meal. They're eating bread. They're drinking wine. They're like, can we come to this church? Like, that was not like, they didn't really. It wasn't that mobile. It's like, you were there you're in Rome in your little house church. And like, you just got to work through stuff, man. You couldn't just say, yeah, gosh. I'm going to try this one now. By the way, I'm not belittling uh, how difficult it can be for those of you who've moved from other cities. I'm, I'm being facetious a little bit. I understand it can be quite difficult. I, can, I also understand from personal experience that if you come out of a uh, situation where um, uh, Christ does not preach with boldness or there's not a faithfulness to the scriptures, I understand those can be very, very challenging situations. So I am empathetic to that. But my point is, at some point, you've got to get those roots planted and you need your people. And once you make a decision, these are my people, it won't take long before I realize, oh my gosh, these are really sinny people. Oh, maybe I picked the wrong people. Well, relax, they're thinking that about you as well. So <laughs> we can love each other through all of this. And I want you to notice their prayer. Um, their, the, the way that they pray is not, oh God, change the circumstances, it's oh God, change me. We, as I think the, the, the modern West, are quite accustomed to praying that something else out there ought to change. And over the last 50 to 100 years, in Canada and in America, there's sort of this prevailing conversation in culture, like the church is losing ground and Christians are losing ground, and oh, for the old days when we had more sort of power culturally. Those are very strange conversations, by the way, for the rest of the global church, globally and historically, because they've never been in a position of sort of cultural, you know, sort of having the... Uh, the, 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 their way, culture, they have things sort of reflect their ethics. So firstly, there's that. But the other thing is, when you examine the history of Christian faith here in Canada and in America, uh, it's, it, was, it was never, I don't think it's, I think it's too generous to say um, that Canadian history or American history was Christian. There's elements in which, there, uh, which Christian faith can be seen in our history and ways in which Christianity was just was an absolute disaster. Things were done in the name of Christianity that had nothing to do with Christ. Both of those things can be found in both Canadian and American history. And so because of that, we are so used to praying, oh God, change this thing, change the legislation, change their minds about that. Change. And everything is always very external. So we see in the power of the, the early church, the power that I hope to see in my life and in this church, is that Rome can burn, but we... We'll love our God and love his ways. We will train our children to love God and love his ways. And we will not look for sort of this top-down salvation for Canada by getting the right horse and the right, win the right race politically, but that regardless of what's happening there, that we, as the people of God, would love our neighbors and see real and true salvation and transformation happening in our neighborhoods because we preach the name, because we proclaim the name, the power of God does its work as it always has in this way. And so we notice their prayers in that, the flow of the prayer. God, you are this. You've done this. Would you grant this? That prayer, by the way, is, they're quoting from Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they rise up against the Lord's anointed? So the reason I mention that is because they didn't just think back on God's faithfulness in their very short life. Think about God's faithfulness. And then we try and think back over the last you know, number of years since we personally have been saved. Oh, how has God been good to me in my particular situations? Hey, that's fine. 
But, you know, he's got millennia of <laughs> track record of radical saving grace and power. So when, we're th- when we talk about God's faithfulness and getting together with our own people to encourage ourselves about how faithful God is, it's not just like, here's something that he did in my life personally, though that's incredible. It's, here's what he did in my life personally, and through all of history, since Abraham, from Abraham to Jesus, planned all this so that we would come to faith in Christ, so that one day we'd be reunited, the cosmic wedding planner, planning the greatest wedding ceremony in the history of existence. They come together and they quote Psalm 2 as a way of saying, here's who God says he is, here's what God has always done, and now here we are being persecuted and everything is coming down around us. God, orient us to that. Who you are, what you have done, what you will continue to do through us, and even in spite of us, and even if this thing crashes and burns, glory be to your name, because that's the hill that I'm dying on. They had surrounded themselves with people who had God's word on tap. And you and I need to be around people. And if you have children, you want to raise your children to be around people who have God's word on tap so that we can be a source of encouragement when it all comes down. Which leads us to the final movement. This all results in generous living. This is the result of the belief in the gospel. This dramatic generosity marked the early church. It doesn't say that they all sold all their stuff. Sometimes this text gets a little misquoted. and It's like everybody sold all their stuff. They put it in a pile and it was commune living. Not really. First of all, it very clearly says that at certain times this was something that they did. Secondly, the apostles didn't command it. So don't worry. The application of this sermon isn't that I tell us all, tell you all, command you according to scripture to sell all your houses. But what the point is, whatever it took, that's the point. There was this incredible generosity. They're like, what does the church need? And they're selling things. It's, it's. It is radical, dramatic generosity. Not just the rich, everybody. But the reason that I'm including the rich here is because the point is, notice it in the text, none of them considered their possessions their own. They saw themselves as stewards and not owners. And so the outworking of the gospel, the outworking of the generosity, looks like you and I will look at our resources like we're stewards. See, if you're an owner, then to give your stuff away, that can be painful. But if you're a steward, none of it's your stuff anyways. And so when the master calls you to to give it, um, you can do it gladly because you recognize all of your stuff is his. Now, if, you're self, if you believe you're a self-made person, and I worked really hard for everything that I have, and blah, 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 it's going to be really hard to have dramatic generosity. And so... Here we see the church realizes, hold on a second, those who had wealth, which really for all of us, all of us in this room are wealthy by global standards. We're all wealthy. You don't like the temperature in your house? You go over, you push a button, you change it. There's billions of people where that's like, what? Okay, so we're all healthy. We're all wealthy. Now, globally speaking. Now, because we're all wealthy, then we ought to have the attitude of the, stu- of the stewards and not the owners. That'll enable dramatic generosity. Uh, from us so that we don't get this idea like you know for example what this teaches us is by God's providence say it this way by God's providence they look at their life and they go wow everything that I have is because of God and so if God God got me to third base maybe I shouldn't relate to all this like I was the one that hit the triple I'm self-made I did this I did that I worked hard hey I Nobody's disputing anybody's sweat equity, but the way they related to it was different. Now, let's take the conversation away from money. Because for some of us, giving money is easier than giving time. If I say to you, go out this week, church, 
And whatever money you were going to spend on fast food, pizza, or wine or something, buy socks and put it in the bin. Guys would be like, a lot of you guys would be like, cool. And you would be like, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Put socks in the bin. But if I said to you, this week, if you could just carve out a half an hour and uh, go downtown with some water bottles or some hot chocolate or something and just find someone on the street, just give it to them, that would be way harder. You'd be like, dude, ask me for $1,000, please. And so it isn't random that when they are filled with the Spirit that this is the way it works out. It's not random. It says that they were filled with the Spirit. You're only saved once. You're only baptized once. And you're full of the Spirit to become a child of God once. But there's this language throughout the New Testament of being continually filled. And that, that's actually the, the tense here. That they're continually filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? It's like you come upon a situation when you really need God to stir you by the power of the Spirit again to move and to act and to serve and to give. And so they're, so they're filled. And so it's not random that they're filled with the Spirit and then the outworking is physical and tangible. That's the core. That dramatic generosity is the core of the gospel. And I close with this. He who was rich became poor so that Jesus Christ, through his poverty, you and I might become rich. And so when you find yourself rejected and persecuted or in a situation where you feel threatened and shaken, may you turn to God. May you turn to his word. May you turn to your people. And may he make you unshakable. May he continue by the power of his work to fill you. May you and I reach out to one another in practical ways. May we support each other in this room through difficult times. May we uplift each other. May we be able to say, I know we're rebuilding it because COVID's been tough, but may we be able to say, these are my people. May we come into community with our people and be encouraged by the wisdom of God's word. May we invest in this church community so that when the trouble comes, we can turn to one another and pray for boldness to preach in the name. May the Father embolden us by the power of the Spirit to go into the city and proclaim the only name under heaven by which mankind can be saved. Christ alone. Let's pray.